Hi, this is Vanessa Taholka, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Bite Into It, a weekly radio show exploring tech news, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via the Triple R website or Bite Into It's Facebook or Twitter accounts. to bite into it. We've got Dan Salmon pushing our buttons this evening. Hello. Hello there. Laura Summers looking amazing next to me on the mic. Hey, hey. Hey, how you doing? And I'm Vanessa Taholka. Thanks so much for tuning in this evening. I know there's a lot going on in the city with some um, activism and things going on. So power to the people out there. Hopefully uh, they'll catch our show on demand. But uh, before we get into things uh, tonight, we want to flag that we have some amazing interviews coming up. One, we'll be exploring why we might create personalities for artificial intelligence. It's a really interesting um, exploration of a potential solution to uh, the problem of of not being able to understand the motivations and the decision-making process behind artificial intelligence um, and sometimes, you know, deep learning type of algorithms. So that will be interesting to explore. Also, we'll be looking at how internet technologies are changing the operation of democracies, you know, particularly influencing elections and, uh, you know, I guess the spread of misinformation and those sort of issues uh, with the rapid transfer of, of information. So we'll be diving into that with a particular Southeast Asian lens. So do stick around for that. Before we get there, there's tons of relatable news this week. Laura, what's been going on? Oh, so much. I don't even know where to start. Um, You probably have all seen this thing about the Apple card and the guy who tweeted that his credit limit was something like 20 times more than his wife. Um, Yeah, and this is an interesting article because uh, this is someone who tweets a lot anyway and is, um, you know, a very heavy tech user. But when he started asking questions about why his and his wife's credit limits might be different, he just went down a rabbit warren with no satisfactory answers. So what happened yeah. next? Well, so so this guy, David Heinmeier Hansen, sorry, saying that wrong. <laughs> um, he started Thursday saying that um, Apple Card gave him 20 times the credit limit that his wife got and that got immediate traction and then... Sorry, Laura, before oh, yes. we go, maybe for those who don't know what an Apple Card is. Oh, yes. Good call, Dan. An <laughs> Apple Card is just a type of credit card or debit card that you use on your Apple phone. Um, but sorry, thank you for pointing that out. Um, but yes, obviously, if it's a credit card, then you're getting a credit limit and that that speaks to your credit score and that speaks to some kind of decision making algorithm in the background saying how much credit should I give Dan versus Vanessa? And apparently in this case, when your name is Dan, you're going to get 20 times more than if your name is Vanessa. Um, so yes, outrageous. I know. I'm right? so trustworthy. I can, and and I... you earn so much more money than I do. <laughs> <laughs> That's purely speculative. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and, and then apparently Steve Wozniak of Apple founder fame hopped on this train and said, I got 10 times the credit limit of my wife and saying that we have no separate bank card or credit card accounts or separate assets. And therefore, there's really should be no distinguishing identifiable change between him and his wife because they're co-listed on every single one of their credit cards and assets. Mm. So whatever credit limit, credit warnings, credit problems they may have, they should have jointly. Of course. Um, and then, uh, 
he said that uh, his wife, so sorry, in, in, in exploring this, he said his wife has a better credit score than he does. But then- And they didn't know this before they had this problem. They actually looked into it because this had come up and people had challenged him and said, surely it's just because you have different um, credit ratings. So they went and paid for the reports and looked exactly. it up. Yeah, and then she was actually rated <laughs> scored higher than he was. So, Which ding, makes ding, ding. sense. What I don't understand is why Apple isn't actually doing that stuff already. Why are they giving out credit without referring to the standard credit uh, files and all that kind of stuff? Well, this is exactly where it gets interesting. And can you unpack the concept of a black black box algorithm for us, please, Laura? Yes, and it's going to be relevant later in the show, so... Get your pencils out, kids. <laughs> so, there will be a test. So unlike, I here's the metaphor I'm come up for with the difference in programming style that these algorithms, these machine learning algorithms are doing now. Unlike a traditional style of programming, which might, if you were to say was like a dance piece, you might have a set number of steps and the dancers will go through those steps as choreographed. It's, it's a designed, planned set of actions. Whereas this new style of programming, these deep learning machine learning models, are doing more like an improv. They have a set of instructions, but how they get from the beginning to the end is less visible to those programmers. So they don't know exactly what the model's going to do. Yeah, and even more, I mean, they can be trained on whole sets of data that show them this is the sort of thing that you'll be looking at. Can you please make some sensible conclusions out of it mm. without giving them necessarily the the rigor around you know the boundaries and, and what would be acceptable and what would be considered bias and so given a history of past decisions that already um, coded in bias it could really be feasible that a black box algorithm or just any algorithm that you can't absolutely interrogate might have biases entrenched within it. Exactly. So if you have a history where women have had lower credit limits, and you know women might, might have had lower credit limits because they wanted less credit, for example. It might not be that they were not credit worthy. They may have just requested lower credit limits, which is not at all contextually visible to that algorithm. Um, and the algorithm then learns that's been the case in the past and decides to give women in future who are applying for credit much lower credit limits. Mm, I like that you found a, a plausible, you know, acceptable case for bias in this. <laughs> well, no, I mean, like, there's there, there's obviously, like, if we want to get into the deep dive on, like, mm. intersectional bias theory, we could talk about the ways that every, every kind of social interaction might, you know, send women down one path and men down another, yeah. and those things accumulate over time, totally. and that having nothing to do with, like, that individual's actual agency or decision making or choice or value or whatever you might want to actually measure um but you know if like i think that there could be lots of reasons that this decision got made that are not to do with whether or not the algorithm was accurate or correct in terms of how it had been trained but simply there was not enough context to know what that decision was and why it had been made in the past and then making making inferences over all that data over time simply just like propagates whatever whatever bias might have been there in the first place place so anyway bloomberg is in launching an investigation into this situation and attempting to add some visibility to these kinds of decisions in yeah, the future especially because the product itself was backed by goldman sachs and so apple had been doing a little bit of obfuscation and saying mm, we don't think the problem's with us and it's like well it's your branded product you know you've got to own it Precisely. Mm. So shall we move on to the next black box algorithm problem? Please do. So Uber, Uber had that problem, well, problem, sorry. Uber had a disaster where they um, killed a pedestrian who was cycling or moving their um, their bike across the road when they were testing their self-driving car. This happened, I think, a year and a half ago or so. 
And there was recently been an actual report um, sent by the Motor Association in the U.S. So they took nearly 18 months to investigate it. Um, and th- so they've released some of the sort of further information about what went wrong with that algorithm. And the one, like, there's actually several pieces of, like, bad news here. But the one that just absolutely wigs me out is that they had programmed the, the computer vision, the sensors on the front of the car looking for obstacles. They had given it rules that said it can't be a person if it's on the road because pedestrians are only on the sidewalk. <sighs> I know. Yeah, or pedestrian crossings. Yeah, or pedestrian yeah. crossings. So it was but looking out for specific crossings, but but not just the average road. Precisely. Yeah. So when when they look at the decision making that this computer vision was trying to do to work out what this person was, they they see it go from like a bike to a car to some other unknown obstacle. But at no point was it actually classified as a human because it had been told that it could not be a human, mm. which is wild, right? Like how I, I mean, like I, I find these kinds of revelations like just really good evidence for why we shouldn't have self-driving cars yet absolutely and i what baffles me about this is why they're not being programmed to yeah sure it's a human it's still something in the way and you should be avoiding hitting it i don't understand yeah. why like, they couldn't what do if that. it was a kangaroo yes. exactly. yeah what if it was anything that it, could just there, there could have been there. plenty of things and also like I, I saw someone on twitter saying well what if it was a bouncing ball that would have mm. a child coming immediately after it there are lots of things that could be an obstacle in the road that might not actually even be a human but might indicate a human was near yeah have they considered any of those cases yeah but the wild thing is not only did they tell it couldn't be a human they then decided to like actually program in a one second delay between identifying this thing and like alerting that the the human driver so they she had 0.2 seconds instead of 1.2 seconds in which she might have realistically put pumped the brakes and like prevented this catastrophe but instead like she had an alert which gave her exactly dot two seconds to respond and as we all know she didn't and it hit this pedestrian and threw her about 75 meters um or sorry 75 feet not meters (laughs) still (laughs) not sure but it's it it was still yeah it wasn't it was still a reasonable amount amount, and it was um and then uber's ceo the new ceo who was supposed to Mm. have you know, brought, brought a new era of uh, cultural values to Uber. <laughs> no, wait, this is what I'm remembering from the press release. You know, oh, the new man. the new moral compass. That's it. Yeah. The, the, the North Star. Uh, <laughs> the new moral compass. Go yeah, on. he called it a mistake. He said, uh, and and so when when talking about the murder of Saudi Arabian journalist Jamal. Kashagi, I'm probably saying that wrong. Um, he said, it's a serious mistake. We've made mistakes too, right, with self-driving. So I think that people make mistakes. It doesn't mean that they can never be forgiven. Mm. And obviously people jumped on that statement because it, the idea of calling the murder of that journalist who was... Um, you know, made vulnerable for no reason of his own fault, and then Uber's self-driving, mis- you know, death as a mistake, and saying that we should be forgiven for that. Uh, That's not an analog deaf. that I'm We're willing to know. Yeah. Yeah. We're not there. Yeah. We're not there. Yeah. Uh, I am going to call an end to our news segment this morning okay. because we've got such oh, this evening because we've got such <laughs> exciting guests to get to, and I'm not even in the same time zone as everybody. Triple <laughs> <laughs> bite into it with Dan, Laura and Vanessa. Thanks for tuning in. 
Hua Chia is a researcher, uh, sorry, Hoi Chia is a researcher at the Centre for Corporate Law with the Melbourne Law School at the University of Melbourne. She's been investigating artificial intelligence and deep learning and began to wonder about how we relate to and build trust with algorithms. Tonight, she joins us to discuss whether understanding the personality within an algorithm might make us trust AI more. Welcome to Byte, Hoi. Hi, thank you for having me. It's so great to have you here um, and it's so great to engage with people from um, a law department mm-hmm. around issues of technology because we're often asking questions that move into the legal space and, and um, sometimes struggle with the answers mm. to know what's happening there. So as a researcher um, based with a law school, how did you become interested in artificial intelligence and deep learning technologies? Uh, yeah, well... This research idea came from me being inspired by the Banking Royal Commission. I think most people would be aware of the Royal Commission into banking misconduct. So after the commission found that the key motivating force was greed, a lot of the ethical uh, misconduct was motivated by the greed of the banks, the financial advisors, and since then there was a lot of talk about putting in place the right punishments um, to to curb that kind of behavior. But that sort of got me thinking that uh, if people are greedy and are inevitably greedy, whether you need a non-human financial advisor, and that got me looking into the use of robo-financial advisors, the key being that an algorithm does not feel greed and it does not need money. And it can also be rewarded and punished in a, in a way that irrational humans cannot. So you can set up the right reward system and punishments for an algorithm, the AI agent, and you can do so without using much, much resources. No real money needs to be done for rewarding an AI agent. So that's how this idea came about. That is such a creative approach to problem solving this particular area. Um, But I I guess I imagine that the moment you start thinking about robo financial advisors and and incentives, you start thinking about, well, then if we have this tight regulatory framework to manage um, employees' actions and banks and organisations' actions, you know, how do you start to monitor the behaviours of an algorithm? So what was the next step in the research for you? Um, I think the research is at quite an early stage. So we are somewhat speculating into the future about how deep learning agents could be used. So my research focused on deep learning. Um, Currently, the regulatory regime treats algorithms quite simply just as a product. And the person who offers the AI robo-advisor, for example, a financial service firm, then those human beings will be treated as if they've given the advice, even though the advice comes from the algorithm and even if there's no real human input. So it's still treated as being that the algorithm is still not sophisticated and is treated as just a product, just a conduit for the humans providing the service. Um, So my research was trying to look ahead into the future a little when algorithms become really sophisticated to the extent that um, it might be said that the humans are not in full control of it. Um, I'm I'm super curious about how you might um, or how how you are or are planning to set up this research to try and um, investigate how people will respond to something that might be more you know um, anthropomorphized and more human more more like what we might consider a persona that's a digital persona as opposed to mm-hmm. thinking of it just as a, a reasonably like straightforward algorithm like how how do you even begin to explore that like that's such an interesting concept to me. 
Uh, I think the concept is really more about communication. So um, yeah, just to be clear, my background is in law and I'm not a, an AI expert mm. in, in terms of researching the technology. Um, but it's rather about communication. So it's not to say that the AI really is uh, a person or has a conscience in any way, but rather it's about communicating to the public, especially to people without a technical background. And how do you do that in a way that people can quickly understand what you mean? So using personality words like greedy or prudent, then that just gives a person, a regular person without any understanding of deep learning, but it does give them a sense of how the AI agent will behave. And I thought about the concept of personality because if you think about how we, we think of other human beings, someone's personality gives you an idea of how they will behave, even if it's a situation that they've never encountered before. For example, if you have an employee and you interview them to ask, oh, how would you deal with a frustrating client? You're not really asking about that situation X. You just want to know, do they have patience? Are they polite? The qualities so that you can kind of know how they would behave in a situation that you've never encountered before. So thinking about an AI algorithm, um, explaining it to the public with words like a personality just gives them a sense of how they would behave in situations that perhaps no one has even thought about yet. Have you given any thought to um, whether people, like the research candidates, are expected to try and find personalities they identify with or reject personalities they don't identify with? Is that kind of the idea that if, if it feels like the sort of thing you want them to do or the thing that you would be doing, then you would be more comfortable? And if it's, you know, like if you don't want, for instance, a greedy or an aggressive financial advisor, you want someone who's prudent, then you look for someone, uh, an algorithm that's described in that way. Yes, exactly. That's that's the point of the research that people can choose what works for them. Mm -hmm. So if they are happy to take a high risk approach and a sort of high risk, high return approach, then that's the algorithm that you can choose. And so on. <laughs> it rolls up in yes, a flashy yes, sports car. <laughs> Yes, and for someone who's happier with a, a prudent, slower growth, slow and steady approach, then that's the algorithm that's right for you. So it's really about communication and communicating to people a reasonable range of how they can expect an algorithm to behave. It's a very interesting thought experiment because at the moment when we think about the the, um, the inputs into how you might design personality on top of things that people interact with, really where I see a lot of that action is in chatbots. And there are mm -hmm. chatbots on, you know, financial services websites, just as there are chatbots on the Bunnings website, for example. You know, so they're, they're everywhere. But usually I find that they um, customise that personality to suit the brand. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's very much about maximising maximizing sales rather than illuminating something about the rationale behind the scenes. If you take this to uh, a deeper level where maybe some that you'd have a learning type of uh, feature, then it'd be quite possible to see um, personalities shaped depending on what sort of customer has gone in front of it and, and has walked in the door to maximize the selling opportunity. Um, do you think that there would be potential to uh, codify the relationship between personality and algorithm in such a way that it became um, like a, a responsibility to represent your your AI um, personality in a certain way if it behaved in certain ways? Hmm, well, that's an interesting point to talk about how the personality could change. So um, yeah, I think you, you explained something about deep learning. So it could 
depending on the information that it got, for example, maybe it could something that was originally set up to be prudent could start to shift towards being a higher risk. And so how to, to deal with that? Um, well, at, at the law school, we are talking about regulatory regimes for that, but it, it is at the early stage. Mm. And what we are talking about is about auditing algorithms. Mm. So for a way for us to see what is happening and to check back, even if something has been originally set up a year later because of the interactions with people and with data, um, whether it will start to drift. And so we do need a lot more work in figuring out what's happening and auditing those changes. But um, I would say that that is quite at an early stage. Have you had much um, discussions with people who work in the banking sector about this yet? Because I imagine that they would either be very interested in it or terrified that their jobs are going to be taken by a robot. <laughs> oh, well, we haven't had direct discussions with, with people at the banks. Um, with the taking over of jobs, oh, that's something that is going to affect everyone. So I think at the least we're, we're all going to be vulnerable to that. Many tasks done by lawyers are being automated as well. We also, <laughs> I've also done, done some looking into um, a lot of contract work is being automated. So we're all, all our jobs are up for grabs. <laughs> yeah, and af after the Royal Commission, a lot of those financial advisors probably don't deserve to have their jobs, but that's <laughs> another discussion. I mean, to be fair, ro uh, robo-advice is not even that new a concept. It's been around in North America and Canada for some time. Um, you probably know I worked at a robo-advisor in <laughs> Melbourne called Clover, which has been around for um, a good number of years now. Mm. So the idea of um, an algorithmic um, fixed program, which is setting an investment strategy, isn't even new. Just the idea of maybe having it adjust to market conditions or be a bit more, you know, change over time-y is maybe the, the newer and more interesting part that, that could be explored here. Um, I am curious if you have um, any, any ambitions or plans to research any other domains in terms of algorithmic decision makers. Like, are you thinking outside of finance or is that the sort of scope of the research for the moment? Um, I have also done some early um, work into looking into the issue of bias. So th those were the two big issues, the lack of explainability, which I dealt with in this research, and also the issue of bias. So it's, it's still early days. So I don't mm -hmm. want to sort of preempt empt findings, um, but um, happy to, to have a few um, talking points about the issue of bias from deep learning and how that comes from the data. Um, so tell us more. What when when um, <laughs> when an algorithm is learning about? Well, we, we talked about this a bit earlier with this um, Goldman Sachs Apple card thing, where there might be um, there might be historical data which indicates a certain like sort of historical trend, which may or may not be about preferences or systematic inequality or some combination of those kinds of factors. And then the decision making learns that that's been the case and propagates it forward without necessarily having the context. Um, uh, so what, what other kinds of bias have you seen or have you come across as you, I mean, perhaps in a law context, like what kinds of things have you seen that you've thought we really needed to interrogate better? Well, I have been looking into the research in algorithmic fairness, where that's that's the field in computer science where they're looking into how bias can be mitigated, for example, trying to remove it from the data. Um, one issue, perhaps from having a legal perspective that I, I look into, um, I do see that there is a bit of a disconnect in people in the computer science field 
doing research based on rather general ideas of fairness, but not tying back to the law. So that I think is uh, an issue where we sort of have these two separate worlds. And for example, I would look at a, a paper from computer science and they'll talk about fairness. Some people think fairness is this, some people think fairness is that. It's quite general. And as a lawyer, you think that, um, well, actually we have laws about this. We have laws that regulate this already. So it's really about trying to translate those laws into a way that's applicable for um, the people in the computer science field and in a way that they can use it when creating algorithms. So that's a space that is still in its early stages and we've still got a lot of work to do there. Amazing. I think that there's um, so much potential for us to uh, learn from what the legal space already codifies in our jurisdiction and how we can maybe leverage that to make sure that the products of tomorrow uh, are really um, protecting the, the consumer as well. Uh, really interesting to see that your work came out of the Banking Royal Commission. Um, <laughs> I, I wonder, you know, has there been a, a lot of interest in the law at the moment in terms of um, upskilling in the technology space? Um, I think, I don't want to betray my own kind, but, <laughs> but I think that the law is a rather uh, traditional and slow-moving profession. And I will make the comment that there is a lot of good in that the law is slow-moving because when you have something that carries such force that can just make a decision, boom, millions of dollars, someone loses, or um, when it carries the force of the law, then you don't want it changing every year with different trends. Um, but um, I think a lot of the people in legal profession do need to be more aware of what's happening. And um, the work is just starting, I think, mm. that people are starting to realize what a big impact AI will have and how a lot of people need to get involved to talk about the legal and ethical implications. Well, I hope we can speak with you further down the track and um, learn more about the legal angle on so many of these technologies as they evolve. We've been speaking with Hoi Chia, a researcher at the Centre for Corporate Law at the University of Melbourne. You can read her article entitled The Personality in Artificial Intelligence in uh, Melbourne Uni's magazine Pursuit, which is online. And there's also links there to her academic profile if you want to keep in touch with the research. Really interesting stuff. Thanks so much, Hoy. Thank you for having me. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R, exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favorite podcast platform. Triple R, you're with Bite Into It with Dan, Laura, and Vanessa. Or Lauren, as her friends sometimes call her. <laughs> no, they do not. Only me when I'm being silly. Uh, look, we have been joined in studio by Associate Professor Dr. Sarah Chinasami. She is a postdoctorate research fellow at, in the Media and Communication Department at the University of Melbourne. It's a very University of Melbourne informed show this evening. She's been exploring what digital democracy looks like and what some of the online threats to democracy might be, particularly within the context of Southeast Asian countries. Welcome, Sarah. Oh, thank you very much for having me here. It's our pleasure. It is such a topical field. People are very concerned about the influence of social media on elections. You know, Facebook has, has had to front the US um, Senate to talk about, you know, how they may or may not be impacting um, the democracy there. Mm. And we know that there's so many elections these days that are fraught and that um, people are being targeted and um, advertised to. Mm. So so what can you tell us about the sorts of um, 
problems in this area, for example, misinformation? Right. Uh, when we talk about fake news and uh, misinformation uh, or manipulation of information, um, I would say that it's a big challenge at Global. And um, we could see almost every country are playing their extensive role in encountering the impact of uh, fake news. But then again, we have to see the demographic of the population itself. Uh, in some countries, we could see that more than half of their population or three quarter of their population are very extensive using their uh, social media mm -hmm. platforms. So the chances of the fake news is there if the higher uh, range of uh, uh, social media consumption occur in that country. But at the same time, also, it was, um, it also include the factor of the uh, digital policy framework in, in that particular countries. So with that said, what sort of different responses are we seeing from governments around the world to the problem of fake news, particularly around elections? Yeah, so we could see the traffic of the circulation of fake news, especially on political hawks. It's very much active during the campaigning period. And um, at the same time, we also need to concern about the, um, uh, about the uh, disaster period where people would go for a social media platform to get the information. So these things that we need to avoid and what we need to do is we need to educate our people, especially during um, this time where they need to uh, refer to cred credential or verified sources of information to get all the uh, information. What sort of responses uh, is your research finding that governments are putting together? Um, so compared to you know, fake news that might be automated or uh, interest groups might be creating it. Uh, are governments and people in power responding in an appropriate way to this idea of fake news or are they perhaps exploiting it a bit too much? Um, it's it's actually differ according to the countries and we could see that almost every country, they have uh, different kinds of uh, uh, strategy, policy strategy approach towards the uh, consumption of um, social media usage. In some countries, we could see in Southeast Asia countries, uh, for example, then like um, uh, Malaysia, for example, we have uh, issue of race, uh, religion and royalty. And so we could see that almost every country, they have a different framework of legislation, how they could monitor the circulation of uh, fake news. But interestingly, what I could say that information manipulation has been increasingly used as an instrument, uh, as an instrument to influence public behavior, ethnic conflicts, draw support of religious groups, and also sometimes could create uh, public fear, hatred, and also violence. So it's very much depending on the political happening that occur in that country with what kind of um, legislation sphere that they are bringing to control the circulation of fake news. Um, I was actually recently in the Philippines for a digital rights camp, and Interestingly, there I heard a number of people, especially from the smaller, more um, problematic governments, shall we say, mm -hmm. um, expressing concern not only that the governments were not coming up with an appropriate response, but they were in fact themselves the ones perpetrating these kinds of behaviors. Or I, I heard one person saying that they thought that there was evidence that the Filipino government had like essentially paid people mm. to propagate misinformation surrounding the regime or to try and like push back against activist attempts to um, expose wrongdoing by the regime. Mm. Um, 
I'm, I'm really curious because there's a lot of sort of nebulous feeling that there's something that some of these governments might actually be the ones sort of um, manipulating the information environment. Did you find any evidence for that? Or can you can you speak to that at all? Um, as I said earlier, it's very much depending on the uh, on the countries, and we could see that the political circuits and also the political dif- uh, discourse in certain countries are a bit different. We need to see who are the cyber troopers, whether they are aligned to the government or they are aligned to the opposition. At the same time, they are paid bloggers who can uh, willing to uh, post all the information online. So basically, all this information is they wanted to win the heart and the mind of the people during the um, election period. And um, today we could see that, you know, the spread of uh, misinformation is intensely borne up. Even the presence of active facts checker even cannot stop the Mm -hmm. misinformation. So we really need to see the concept, I mean, the definition of the fake news. Mm -hmm. And uh, under the fake news, we could see there is uh, misinformation disinformation, malinformation. So there are a variety of uh, aspects that involve under the roof of the fake news. Mm. So the obvious question we have to ask you, Sarah, is with uh, Facebook refusing to uh, get rid of, uh, well, refusing to monitor truth and political advertising on its platform and then Twitter saying that it will not um, accept political motivated uh, advertising and promotion on its site, uh, what do you think about these, these moves? Um, I would say that it's more to the algorithm of the social media companies because we could see that in daily basis there are a lot of growth in terms of the social media platform. We have uh, Facebook, Twitter, Insta story and then uh, back again to the Facebook itself we could see a lot of interactive applications over there. So basically all the social media company they are coming out with this kind of platform but then again they didn't thought about what are the significant, what are the potential threat that could be done in the future by all these um, uh, all this uh, what we call innovative application on the social media platform and I could say that um, the incident in um, which happened in Sri Lanka New Zealand it's a one of the perfect example where all the social media companies is actually struggling to you know to have a algorithm that can filter the the what we call um, the information that been circulated people thought that it could be a game show but then again it was a, rare, a real thing that happened that could cause uh, what we call um, uh, damage to the people and risk of uh, you know security. So these are the aspects that we really need to. But, but again, when we look at the advertising, definitely there would be a significant impact why they pull up to, 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 to that extent. And uh, I would say that today, the social media company itself, they are struggling to monitor what we call extensively usage of a certain um, innovative application on their website. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the interesting new problems that's introduced in this domain is that unlike a traditional publishing platform where you know I might go and buy a New York Times and I see the same article that Vanessa or Dan or, or you would see Sarah, mm-hmm. um, when we have these algorithms that are doing this micro-targeting, you might have a totally different set of news than I have or anyone else. So we introduce this like sort of compounding explosion of possibilities, which makes it very hard to monitor what even is happening or what one person might be seeing. Um, 
so do you in that context of not knowing or not being able to sort of see like a global truth mm-hmm. um what what is the role of fact checking or is it possible even to consider whether fact checking will, will help us because if we if we don't know what someone else is seeing we can't even fact check it like how did you did you explore this this sort of problem of micro targeting at all in your research or have you seen any useful responses to it as you've done your work um what i would say that apart from revising and enacting new law and government, civil society groups, technology companies and private entities are still looking at the fact checking methods, media literacy program and algorithm adjustment as possible uh, as solution for for the fake news. Facebook example, we could see that a lot of research have been um, been um, been given for the scholars to identify what is the best algorithm method to encounter this disinformation and manipulation of information on the website. But again, as I said earlier, it's very much depending on the type of fake news circulation on certain countries. We could see in a developed Western country, there are a lot of uh, uh, political hawks website, but in Southeast Asia, we could see there are still less degree of that that kind of phenomenon. So uh, back again, it is the responsibility of the policymakers and also the community itself. I would say that implementing law enforcement that is fair and strict towards the fake news makers and uh, spread us, but it's remain responsibility of the government. Mm. Uh, Sarah, I want to dig more into the algorithm part of this because we've talked a lot about disinformation and fake news and the, the differences between those sort of issues and the, the intentional publishing of, of bad data. But I think there's an interesting area of um, amplifying extreme views that the algorithms on these social media networks are designed to um, promote things that are more controversial because of the things that they prioritise, you know, the, the likes and the sharing and the, the argumentative conversations, and that's that's inherently going to happen on more controversial content. Um, do you think – is there any good thinking about how to solve that sort of problem, how to, how to unpick that, that connection between really extreme views – um, versus, you know, the more mainstream, moderate views mm-hmm. that um, that, the, the that languish that at the bottom of a, a timeline. Yeah, all engagement is not good engagement. That's right. <laughs> yeah. So uh, this is very much towards the media literacy approach here. So that is the perfect uh, thing that how we wanted to encounter all this uh, uh, fake news at the same time of this to stop the spread of uh, misinformation on online. But the media literacy is a is a great process which we really need to encourage that from our home with our kids and then at the school and even at the university level and we need to encourage uh, uh, our society to we need to educate them to check all the information before they are reading it if the information is not coming from a credible source if not coming from uh, sources that have been trusted do not share do not like because the more you like the more you share it will 
encourage other netizens to do uh, the same act as well. So a media literacy approach, we need to be embedded in a school uh, curriculum that I would propose that because, uh, for example, Taiwan is a perfect example in um, conducting media literacy approach where children at eight years old in their school, they are exposed to the media literacy syllabus. So the kids are grown in a in a in an environment how to use the social media in ethics, in ethical and also in responsible way. So they are encouraged to 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 use the internet in a good and a great discussion with a group will will monitor the movement of the kids. So we need this kind of uh, syllabus and approach should be embedded into our school curriculum syllabus. Gosh, it's so interesting to hear that example. That's not something I've heard about before, and I hope that we can find out more about it in the future. Um, we've been speaking with Associate Professor Dr. Sarah Chinasamy. She is a postdoctoral research fellow in the Media and Communication Department at the University of Melbourne, which is why she sounds so informed on these very complex issues. Do look up her research. Um, you can find an article in uh, Melbourne University's Pursuit magazine. Uh, it's online and it's called The Thin Line Between Fake and Fact. Well worth a read. Thank you so much for joining us this evening. Well, thank you for having me here, Vanessa. It's, it's been a pleasure. Yeah. Uh, you're with Bite Into It with Dan, Laura and Vanessa. Thanks for being part of our show this evening. So we have had a fascinating evening where we've talked about unpacking black box algorithms and how those decisions are made. And we've also talked about misinformation, disinformation, the challenges of keeping a fair and free democracy when uh, there's all of this communication going on online and it's really unvetted. There was an amazing article in the journal Nature um, that just came out uh, at the end of August, but it's only, well, it was corrected in the end of August. It's only come to my attention now. And it poses the, uh, the question, what if we could inoculate against false information? And what if we could even inoculate after people had been exposed to false information? It could still make a difference. So there's some really promising research that's been published under the title Fake News Game Confers Psychological Resistance Against Online Misinformation, in which they have really unpacked the problem of online misinformation, the challenges, um, and it's it's really well uh, referenced, this, this uh, journal article. And it also talks about a whole range of solutions that have been proposed and some of which haven't actually borne fruit yet. You know, decades of research um, have found that misinformation is not easily corrected, been corrected. But there is light at the end of the tunnel and they've said that um, you can actually start to uh, create a resistance to online misinformation. And it's a bit similar to what uh, Dr. Seri Chinasami was talking about in terms of, you know, ex really good education programs. That syllabus for eight-year-olds, like, blew my mind, right? We How need that. Seriously. We, yeah, everyone... We're all still trying to find our way. Yeah. Um, I'm so fascinated by the idea of a herd immunity to misinformation. What a fascinating idea is that? Well, when you start reading into it, it starts talking about tapping into cultural truisms and it poses uh, an example of um, a, a wild, a widely held belief such as it's a good idea to brush your teeth, something that's very non-controversial 
Uh, luckily, there's no anti-teeth brushes out there that I know of. But people do rebel and not brush their teeth oh, in order to annoy people. That is like, not something to rebel against. Like when you were a yeah. kid for a start. But like at the same time, I mean, sorry, Laura, you're about to say something. I was just going to say, come on, there's the fluoride whole thing. Like there oh, is a, there's, a, there's an entire like conspiracy theory wow. in the teeth brushing industry. And, wow. that, and that is herd immunity almost <laughs> being, and, like, challenged, being right a challenged right there yeah. quite literally. But I guess, you know, they've taken these cultural truisms and then tried to expound upon what would make something a cultural truism. How can you leverage that and, um, and grow... I guess, some helpful type of ideas in your community, the idea of therapeutic vaccines. So really, they very heavily use the vaccination metaphor throughout the article. It's far too complex to get into here. Laura, is there anything you wanted to bring up from it? Well, I'm really fascinated that they're exploring a gamification approach. So they've created these badges to try and sort of brand what type of problem is being identified. So the six badges I can see are discredit, conspiracy, trolling, polarization, impersonation, and emotic emotion so essentially six sort of vectors of attack and it will bring up say um, a piece of news that you're interrogating it'll bring up a paragraph and then it will flag them with these sorts of tags like whisper provoke strike ignite mock you know um, so it's very well worth looking at it is the fake news game confers psychological and i can't get to the top of the article resistance against online misinformation thank you so much do check it out we've got it hey it's been a really educational show for us and i hope for you too thanks to our guests hoi chia and associate professor dr sarah chinasami uh, both from university of melbourne big thank you to our relatively new podcaster yazan saif really grateful to you for getting our podcast um, out of the weeds and back online we've really appreciated that we've been bite into it we'll be back next wednesday evening Hi, this is Vanessa Taholka. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Bite Into It, a weekly radio show exploring tech news. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Triple R's website or Bite Into It's Twitter or Facebook accounts. 